Good morning, church. Good morning. Let's take our seats and take out our Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we start this new book to the same church. Let's uh, read, and, and this is a long sentence if you're an English teacher. This is a long sentence that Paul has there. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 in a message entitled, A Church to Be Proud Of. So let's read our text. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions, tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing that God, uh, with God rather to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that we as your people can gather again into this place. And God, as we have spent time, Lord, worshiping you and just expressing our love and appreciation of you, uh, God, through song, now we pray that our worship would continue as we open your word. God, as you reveal your truth to us, the truth, that which, Lord, is uh, honest and, Lord, that which is being challenged by many today, uh, God, uh, we pray uh, that you would continue to take this truth and to uh, get it into our minds, Lord, that we might apply it to our lives. And God, in these times where Men are confused, and Lord, things are going crazy. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's an anchor. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. What you said was sin in the Garden of Eden is still sin today. And the need, Lord, is for a Savior. And there is not many. There's only one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Creator. And so, God... May we, as we open your word today, be ministered to by it. May our uh, faith be strengthened as we hear it and as we study it. And God, I pray if there's any that have not yet given their lives to you, that today might be the day where they would leave here changed with their sins forgiven, a relationship with the living God and the hope of heaven. 
So, Lord, bless this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A father took his son to a large city museum. Thinking that the visit would entertain the boy, but after two hours, this young man did nothing but sigh and complain. As they cruised through the museum, he was just whining and complaining, and finally he said, Dad, let's go someplace where things are real. Some people feel that way about the Bible. They think they're in a religious museum, reading ancient words and looking at ancient artifacts that have no really significance or meaning in today's culture and scientific worlds. But they are wrong. They're wrong. In fact, no book ever published has more meaning for our lives and more relevance for our problems today than the Bible. A brilliant professor of Yale University by the name of William Lyon Phelps said this, I believe a knowledge of the Bible without a college course is more invaluable than a college course without the Bible. I love that. That's the reality. Tragically, what has happened in many of our colleges is that's the place where people are being perverted. That you gotta grow up and go to college. You gotta go to college. Uh, Here's what I'd recommend before you send any of your kids off to college, for those of you that have children that are approaching that age, that you send them away to a Bible college for a year before they go to college. Because I'll tell you what, the colleges are undermining, and that's where a lot of this perversion and craziness is being touted, being taught. You see, last time together we finished our study in 1 Thessalonians. This morning we are going to continue to look at this church in the city of Thessalonica. And this church is one that had a, an amazing influence there in the city, in the culture, even though they were facing difficulties. And we're going to look at some of the qualities and the things that, well, a lot of churches today I get stuff, you know, that gets mailed to me, how to have a successful church, how to build a big church, how to present and, and put the stage presence and, and set the atmosphere and, and reach people with this new program, how to raise funds when you're doing things. And, and I get all this stuff that, that comes across my desk. And of course, along with that, the church, you know, there's certain churches that said, we've seen, you know, church growth and, and this many people have come and, and, and we're seeing that many, uh, you know, conversions or whatever. Um, and churches take pride in, in many things. I mean, there are churches when, this, when I see this stuff that have 
a, a massive membership or attendance, and they uh, talk about their multi-site campuses, the design of their buildings and, and their uh, screens and all, and, and uh, the massive membership and, and attendance as a result, they, their financial, hey, we did this a campaign to raise funds for this, and here's how you need to do it, and, and they'll set up this campaign to raise funds and, and finances, and, and they talk about their music. We uh, sold the pipe organ for the rock band in order to be relevant, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. They talk about their social status and, and the prominence of their pastor, their political clout, you see, in the community, their theological cause that they tout frequently. Others celebrate with their creativity and their freedom from traditional modes of worship. Some others said, well, we've seen a growth. We've replaced the preaching with skits. We have plays now and musicals. And what we're trying to do is, is uh, be inoffensive and non-threatening and provide a place for unbelievers and nominal Christians to come into the congregation. And these churches are touted as churches. You need to be like this. You see, but what men say the need is and how the culture, uh, you know, puts things out there, that's not, that's not the model for the church. The goal, my goal for this church is not simply to fill pews. Because if you fill pews and the people in those pews are on their way to hell, what have you done? The, the goal and the desire is to fill the minds of God's people with the word of God to help them understand the work and the will of God and to, to send them out, to send people out into the, the, the world, you see, to preach the gospel, to live out the mind and the will of God. We're not here to be judged by superficial standards. We're not here to coddle, you know, a people with uh, how they feel and the emotions. We are here to teach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God. This church that Paul was proud of and bragging on, where does it say that? Well, look at verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves do what? Boast. We're proud. Boast of you among the churches of God. And then he gives the things that he boasts of. You see, when we look at the church that pleases God and a church that Paul is proud of, what are the qualities there? It's certainly not the buildings. They were meeting in homes at the time. I mean, it had little to be proud of by way of buildings. There were no programs. There were no performers. It was not, this church here in Thessalonica was not a large or wealthy church. 
In fact, most of the early Christians were from lower social classes. This congregation lacked social and political clout in that uh, Christians were despised outcasts in the Roman society here, as we are presently seeing happened in our own country. They didn't have a famous pastor. The names of the elders are not mentioned. We don't have any of them named. They couldn't offer any prospective converts the comfortable, entertaining, non-threatening environment of the seeker-friendly church. In fact, this church was anything but seeker-friendly and comfortable. This church, they were going through a tough time. Persecution and afflictions marked this church. And yet they were a church that Paul could write to and say, hey, you know what? I love what God's doing there in the church. I love what I'm seeing in the church. In fact, I've been telling everybody about the amazing work that God is doing there. You see, the opening verses of this epistle here list several reasons why Paul is boasting about this church. I realize that our modern times, in our, our modern times, it, uh, we're probably uh, not going to get a letter from an apostle, certainly, because that's already completed. But I do believe that God wants his church if we're going to please him and be one worthy of boasting, to be a place of ministry, a place where the people have an impact because of their witness and testimony to the watching world on uh, the, the society. The church should be a disciple-making factory. That's what we're to be. We're to raise up disciples. We're to preach the gospel, and once people respond to the gospel, what are we supposed to do from there? Raise up disciples. Disciples involves what? Listen to the word, discipline. We need to be a disciplined people in order to be a people, in order to be a church that God can be proud of. What's a church look like when it comes to one that God is proud of? Well, Paul lists under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us what this church was like and what he was proud of. Those things that should mark a church that pleases God. What are they? Well, if you're taking note, number one, it's a church that embraces grace and peace. Paul opens up this letter as he did the first letter. This, the second letter, you say, why two? Well, obviously, Paul dealing with the problems that were uh, going on in the church in Thessalonica there uh, with the first letter, he deals with the end time stuff and some difficulty that they were having, kind of clears things up and sets things straight. But you know what? The enemy never gives up. 
So guess what? He's there stirring it up again. And within just a few months later, Paul, hearing about what's going on, sits down to write this second letter. That's the heart of a pastor, somebody who cares for the sheep. When he hears that there's turmoil, when he hears that there's problems, that there's a false doctrines being taught, he, he desires to bring people clarity, to get them and keep them going down the right road, you see. The first letter didn't clear everything up and solve all the problems, and, and the persecution of this church was growing worse. Some believers confused about the time of the great tribulation and, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then you add to that uh, the confusion of a letter saying that the day of the Lord where Jesus uh, is coming back has already taken place. And so these saints, this young church, they were confused and they were anxious. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. And so Paul, recognizing the work of the enemy to bring that kind of uh, difficulty and confusion needed to be dealt with and brought forward. You see, and so... He deals with those things, recognizing that Satan in that day, in that church, is a roaring lion and cruises around seeking to devour and rip off and destroy, or that's 1 Peter 5, verses 7 through 8, or as a serpent, he is seeking to deceive 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It's interesting to me that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica from Corinth. What, a, what an interesting dynamic there because this church is one he's bragging on and commending as an example and, and how amazing the work of the Lord uh, and, and the love of God is going on and people coming to Christ in the midst of tremendous difficulty and suffering. He's writing this letter from Corinth where there's a church that is all in the flesh, man. They're all carnal. They're all, they're all messed up. It was a church that he, he rebuked and had a more correction to deal with. So he writes from this church to a letter going to that church. And he starts off the same way he does, typical the Pauline greeting, grace and peace. Uh, those, that greeting is, is typical of Paul. He almost always adds those words when he opens a letter. Because he knows this, if you don't respond to God and recognize that you are a child of God, not because you have it all together, uh, there's nothing you can do to get God to love you. You see, I spent many years not understanding the grace of God, hearing the Ten, ten, ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Okay, well, I'm trying to do all the shalt nots. Is there anything else that is God thing? Because I find myself struggling with the thou shalt nots because I, I say thou shalt not, I shall not, but then I do. 
So now what? I was so thankful when I began to understand that God's love and forgiveness is not something I earn. It's something that's given to us by grace. He loves me just because he loves me, okay? There's nothing you can do to get God to love you. God loves you like you are. He just doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants you to grow. And, and so, I mean, there's nothing you can do and you just, I, I, you know, and, and stop the, I, I just remember, you know, God, Satan would always say, well, why, why, why should God love you? I don't know. I mean, well, wait a minute, I've done this right, I've done that right, I've done this right, and then, and then Satan comes uh, and he goes, yeah, but you've done this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And so, and so my whole early Christian life was just back and forth and back and forth. You know, why, why does God love you? I don't know. Why does God love you? I don't know why he loves you. And if you knew me, you'd say, well, I don't, really don't know why he loves you. <laughs> Here's the deal. I quit arguing and trying to figure out why and just said, Lord, thank you that you love me, okay? There's no reason. There's nothing that I deserve but hell, but because of your love for me, You've given me heaven through your son, Jesus Christ. You see, so he says grace, and once you understand that, then you can be at peace. You're not going back and forth all the time. You can just be at peace. Say, thank you, God. I, I don't know why, but I'm so grateful that you love me. And, and then that changes everything because now I want to, not to get God's love, I want to do what I do because God loves me. That's a whole different motivation, you see. So Paul says, grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's a little twist that you might miss in just a cursory reading of this verse. It says, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first letter, he says, God the Father, same greeting, uh, just God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? But here, he adds a word here, and it's not just God the Father, it's God our Father. It's much more personal. This is written to those who are in Jesus Christ. Uh, we have placed our lives into his hands. We have become partakers, as 2 Peter chapter 1, 4 says, of the divine nature, sharing eternal life with God through faith, identifying with his son, Jesus Christ. And thus, we have a relationship here that's intimate. It's not some distant God out there in space somewhere that we can't know. That has just created us and say, hey, good luck, man. Have a good life. He wants to be involved in your life, in my life. And Paul calls him our Father. That's good to know when you're struggling, when, when you're suffering as this church was, persecution. 
Good to be reminded, as Paul puts it very intimately here, not just the Father, but our Father. You see, Paul is reminding them that, yes, they're suffering. They're going through difficulty. People are harassing them for their belief and their stand for the things of God. It's good to be reminded when you're suffering that you're God's child. That he's there with you through the suffering, in the sorrow. He's there with you in the pain. It's good to remind ourselves that whenever we're going through difficulty, that we have a father who is sovereign and in control, you see. That's good to know. Because sometimes it doesn't feel like God's out of control. Sometimes it doesn't feel like, where are you, God? How could you let this happen? What, what is going on? Why am I, I got this that I'm dealing with. I, I got this struggle that I'm facing. And now you add one more onto the pile. God, where are you? Don't you care about me? Look at what I'm going through right now. We can feel that way sometimes, can't we? Paul's reminding them, hey, you got a father in heaven. And listen, the God that you worship is one who is sovereign and in control. And as his child, he will not give you more than you can handle. And everything that comes your way by way of any trial or difficulty has first gone through father. And only that which he allows... Remember Job. You see, the enemy had to go to God, who was the accuser of the brethren, and ask permission. Because God was bragging on Job. Hey, have you considered my servant Job, Satan? An upright man, you know, and, and a guy that has it together and keeps it together and is a godly man. Satan goes, you let me add him. And take away his stuff. I mean, you blessed him, give him all this stuff, giving him all, all these kids. I mean, this guy's got it made. If, if you take his stuff away and, and you take his kids away and, and any calamity happens, he's going to leave you. Guess what? Job's attitude after it was all taken away was the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when you get to the end of Job, you see, when you get to the end, he says, before I, I heard the Lord with my ears, I've heard about God's working and moving, but now I've seen God work it in my own life. He grew through that difficulty. Everything that comes your way, that comes my way as a child of God, goes through the Father first. And everything by way of difficulty or, or struggle, you see, God has a plan and purpose for. And we need to be reminded not one sparrow falls to the ground that God doesn't take notice of. And how much more valuable are you to him than a sparrow? God knows the numbers of your, the hairs on your head. Do you know, do you know how much our God, he cares about the details of our lives. And he's in absolute control. And if he, if he numbers the hairs on your head or the lack thereof, whatever the, the situation is. I mean, the, the bottom line is, is, do you know how many hairs you lost today? 
when you combed your hair? No, you have no idea. But guess what? You got a father in heaven who knows exactly how many hairs you've lost. I think that God wants us to understand how he cares about every, as our father, every little facet of our lives. And so we have here uh, Paul talking about God, uh, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the two persons of the Godhead are specified here, the Father and the Son. To Paul, Jesus is deity in the fullest sense. And so he puts these two together. And he brags about this church. I wonder if God brags about me. God brags about you. If God was bragging about you today, what would you like him to say about you? About the church. If he had to describe you or Calvary Chapel of the High Desert, what would he say? Would, would it be like the churches in Revelation? Uh, some of them? No, no kind of correction. Others of them had correction. There was a church of Sardis that was a dead church. It had a name that it lived, but, but it was dead. People just kind of going through the motions. Then there was a lukewarm church at Laodicea who were rich and increased with goods. Had everything that a church could want, all the, all the fluff and stuff. Lukewarm church. He said, because of that, I'll spew you out of my mouth. But then there was a church in Thessalonica. The people there, yes, going through difficulty, but as they were hanging on and trusting the Lord in that difficulty then what we see is growth as a result. You see, this church received grace and peace from God, and therefore they were to show that same grace and peace one towards another. And that's what was happening in those churches. In fact, in fact here's the deal. The reality is, is if you don't show grace and peace, then you don't know grace and peace. Because if you understand the depth of your sin and God's forgiveness and how gracious he's been to you, how can you fail to be gracious towards somebody else? So we see this church here embraced grace and peace. Uh, secondly here, it's a church that exhibits faith and love. Paul explains why he's so grateful for this church, why he brings such a, a compliment and commendation to this church. He's not ashamed at all. You see, in fact, he says, hey, we ought to give you, it's fitting to give you this commendation and to thank God for what's happening here in this congregation because of the demonstration of your love 
one for another. That your, your faith and love. Faith. That which God desires to grow. Listen, uh, people, a lot of us are suckers for the easy life. We want the easy, comfortable life. Hey God, I want to love you and serve you and I want a strong faith and I want to have an impact for you in this world. But can I have it without any trouble? Without any pain? Without any problems? Can I just cruise into heaven you know, just kind of kicking it back top down playing a little music, sipping on a Coke or something, just maybe an In-N-Out burger with one hand, auto drive or something. And you see, we're deceived into thinking that that's how we make it to heaven. Well, no, we don't make it to heaven by earning it or by just creating difficulty but we only grow in faith. We only grow if you want to be strong, if you want to have an impact, you've got to grow in your faith. And you know what happens? You know how faith grows? It grows through the tough times. It just does. Paul, interestingly, prayed for this church previously in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 that night and day, he says, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect that or perfect what is lacking in your faith. In other words, they were doing well, but they had room to grow. And Paul is, is thanking them now that that prayer that he prayed in the first letter was being answered because their love and their faith is increasing. When you suffer, how do you respond? How do you respond to the difficulties, to the trials in life? There's a propensity when we suffer to get selfish. We can become self-focused. How come it's always me? How come I always have to do it? How come I always go through the struggle? Why, why is it that I am always in the place where I'm going through difficulty and everybody else seems to be just fine cruising? You see, have you ever considered the fact that it just may be that God wants to bless you more abundantly. And he wants to do more in you and through you by way of reaching others and having an impact, not only presently, but for all eternity. And so guess what? It's time to get, get buffed. So, so time, time, a little exercise. If you're going to have increasing faith, in the same way that you gain increasing muscle mass, uh, you know, you, you, don't, you don't just cruise into that. Muscle mass comes from a result of not going to the gym. A lot of people go to the gym. And then they watch others. <laughs> and they hang out at the gym. 
And they get on maybe the bike or whatever, the stair climber, and they get on, but as soon as they start breaking a sweat, they go, I got to get off this thing. I got to rest. I've been on it for five minutes now. I need to rest and take it easy. I, what, what am I doing? And then they wonder, why is it that I can't seem to lose weight and get toned up? Because you're not willing to suffer. As soon as it's a little bit uncomfortable and you start just a minimal suffering, you go, I'm done, I'm out. You know what, that's the case spiritually. If we want to grow spiritually and be used of the Lord powerfully, if we want the life that Jesus promises to us abundantly and to be used and blessed presently, it comes as a result of suffering. Your faith grows. Why is that? Because when you suffer, here's your propensity. Either to become selfish and self-focused and sit around and, and PMS. And I don't mean put down, ladies. That means poor me syndrome. Walk around like Eeyore, oh me, oh my. Or we can go, God, you know what? I don't know what to do about this, but I need your wisdom. And you reach out to God when you start to suffer. And you look to God. And yes, you can ask why initially, but if God doesn't tell you why, don't sit around in Eeyore and why me, why me? Uh, just uh, say, okay, God, you haven't told me why I'm going through this and this is going on in my life. Uh, so here's, here's the deal. What do you want me to learn? Because you're here. And you've got a plan and a purpose for me here. And this suffering that I'm going through presently is intended to produce in me maturity and strength in my faith. And as I'm strengthened in my faith, the natural byproduct of that is love. It's love. George Mueller, a great man of faith, once said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. I say and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. You know what? You can be say, yeah, man, I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. Yeah. So how's your walk doing? How's your faith? Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seized. How's your faith? Well, that is revealed by your love one for another. If you're strong in the faith, then guess what? You are also those that are loving and encouraging and reaching out to one another. So the church that God is proud of is a church that embraces grace and peace. It is a church that exhibits faith and love. And then finally, it's a church that endures pain and suffering. It doesn't give up. 
That's what Paul is saying here. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So there, there's the fruit. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience of faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. You hang in there. You don't give up when you're suffering. You endure the pain because you recognize no pain, no gain. Paul is saying that, hey, this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, suffering for the Christian is a badge of honor. Going through the difficulty and clinging to the Lord and, and hanging in there, persevering in, in the tribulation and the trials. Again, as I said last week, you don't learn patience and persevering by reading a book or listening to a sermon. You learn it when you've got to practice it. You put it into practice. You see, and you find that patience isn't easy. That endurance, that quitting, we're tempted to, to quit. Paul is saying, hey, you, uh, as a church here in Thessalonica, you've gone through persecutions, attacks, you see, from without, trials and afflictions, pressures and, and stresses from those trials. Put you in a tough place. But you didn't give up. You didn't quit. You know what? The toddler learns to walk because he doesn't quit or she doesn't quit. They get up, they fall. They get up again, they fall. They get up again, they fall, hit their head on the coffee table and bleed a little bit. And we go, okay, and we coddle them for a minute, pray with them, and then we put them down. And what happens? Then they go, that's it. I'm done until I'm 20. Ever going to try and walk again? Get hurt? It's, it's not easy. Keep falling. Uh, I quit. When I'm 20, I'll give it another shot. You'll never get anywhere like that. That toddler learns to walk. Why? Because you know what, man? He just keeps getting up. He, he beats his head, hits his head, he, he falls down, he, he gets hurt, he cries for a few minutes, but he gets right back up, and he keeps going, and he keeps going, and he keeps going. Perseverance, endurance, he hangs in there, and eventually he's walking, and eventually he's running, and eventually he's jumping. I mean, he goes through the stages, and pretty soon, you know what, even as adults, it doesn't mean that you're never going to fall again, but you're not falling like you did when you were a toddler. Is there growth? Is there maturity? You see, is, is that happening? Are you one that is enduring pain and difficulty when you don't feel like certain things? Are you one that is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness regardless of what everybody else is doing? That no matter how difficult your present circumstances, these believers they look beyond just the circumstances and the present difficulty to the glory that comes, that is promised when Jesus returns, you see. And that's key. He says here, since it is a righteous thing with God 
in verse uh, 6 there, to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels taking in, fl or in flame of fire, rather, uh, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, hey, you're going through troubles. You're going through tribulations and difficulties right now, but God is in control. You're his child. Don't forget that. Hang in there. Don't quit. Stay with it. Don't run from the trial. Run to it and run to God in it. And guess what? Here's the deal. We're on our way to heaven. Okay? And the trouble that you're experiencing presently, I already told you you'd have. Jesus said, in the world you're going to have what? Trouble, tribulation. Okay? But cheer up. Because guess what? I've overcome the world. And so will you as my child. And listen, don't worry about the society and the culture around you. They're haters, and haters going to hate, 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 hate. Shake it off. Okay? Shake it off. You, you, you got to, uh, that's what Paul essentially is saying, in the words of that famous theologian who's doing concerts right now. Packing the places out. You see, hang in there. And, and, and as you go through it, you will grow through it. Uh, the enemy would have you think that God doesn't care, and that's why you're suffering when just the opposite is true. Paul writes to the struggling church of Philippi. In chapter 1, in verse 28, he says, Don't in any way, and this is out of the New Living, uh, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege, listen, listen to this, also the privilege of suffering. I have never looked at it as a privilege. Good verse to memorize when you're suffering. It's the privilege of suffering for him. Jesus said, hey, newsflash, they hated me. So if you're walking with me and you're standing for what my word teaches and, and you're living uh, your life to please me, because they hated me, they're going to what? Hate you. So, so, so don't, don't allow that to dissuade you. He goes on in, in uh, Philippians there in verse one verse, or chapter 1, verse 30. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. But Paul pressed towards the mark of the high calling in Christ. The suffering brings strength. It's the proof of genuine faith when you suffer. That's when your uh, co-workers, that's when your neighbors, that's when your uh, friends and family members, that's when they see Jesus, when you're going through a struggle and you're still rejoicing in the Lord and you don't give up and you hang in there. They go, wait a minute, that's not like the world. The world doesn't do that, man. They they, they, they just, you know, quit and they, they give up and they say, forget it. Listen, suffering 
is a mark as you suffer as Christ has called you to do, rejoicing in the fact that the Lord is in control and allowing that suffering to drive you to Him. And listen, someday the suffering will be over. That's what Paul is saying here. Someday those who trouble you, those who are harassing you, those who are mocking you, uh, it says here, it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. The day, their day is coming, okay? You talk about trouble, they're going to have a lot more trouble than you ever had uh, because they're outside the relationship with God. He says, he says that it's a righteous thing of God to repay the tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest. In other words, the day is coming. You're, you're, you have trouble now. But the day is coming when you will be at rest and those that trouble you, they'll be in trouble. Those who do not obey because there is vengeance coming, God is going to bring the angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two categories of people. There are those that don't know anything about God that have refused you see, to inquire about God. And then there are those who, who know God, but they are unwilling to obey God. And guess what? Both are in trouble. Both are in trouble. Judgment, flaming fire. The Bible talks about the, the fire of hell. Hell is a real place with a real devil, with real evil, you see. And it's a place where the Bible says the, the worm doesn't die and the fire doesn't go out. In other words, as fragile as a worm is, he won't be able to die, but he'll feel the burn. It's, the burn will be there. That's what hell is. It's a place, the Bible says, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to get theirs. Not our job to take vengeance. In fact, we are called, when we are treated and mistreated evilly, we are to repay with good. We are to bless those that curse us. We are to pray for those, and, and this is totally different than the world, but we're not of the world. We're in the world, but not of it. And people need to see it. So they need to see us living and loving and responding the way God has called us to. Because here's the deal. One day, God will settle the score, and these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you, because our testimony among you was believed. Paul closes off, hey, the day is coming when we will admire and we will be admired. You see, in glory, when Jesus takes us home in eternity with him. God is going to judge. And people, depending on what they did with Jesus, will be in heaven or hell. The day is coming. Question, where will you be when that day comes? If Jesus was to come today, have you given your life to him? Do you know your sin is forgiven? Do you know you have the hope of heaven? You say, Pastor, you know what? I have a problem with you guys. You know, how could God be a loving God and send people to hell? How could he do that? 
God loves me too much to condemn me. And I just can't believe that God would make such a place as a lake of fire. How can you call him a good God if he does that? Well, the story of a woman who went to see a doctor who was a believer. And this believer, this doctor, in, in, you know, uh, tried uh, many times to share uh, the gospel with this woman, but she held tight to, well, you know, I, I can't believe that God would send anybody to hell. Well, the woman became ill. And as the doctor probed the diagnosis, she had a tumor. She had cancer. As a result, an operation was necessary. The doctor, seeing the opportunity, cruised into her hospital room and he said to her, uh, you need surgery, but I, I wonder if I should really operate. I mean, I, I, as your doctor, have grown to love you too much to cut into you and, and to put you in any pain. I don't want you to go through any pain. To which this woman, surprisingly, she responded, wait, doc, if you really loved me, you would do everything possible, even surgery, to uh, save my life. How can you allow this awful tumor, this cancer, to remain in my body and do nothing about it? You need to cut me. It was easy then for the doctor to explain that what cancer is to the body, sin is to the world. And both must, both must be dealt with radically and completely. Just as a, a doctor cannot love health without hating disease and dealing with it, so God cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. It's only right. How about you? Where are you at in your relationship with the Lord? Pastor, I don't have cancer. If I have cancer, I'll, I'll, I'll think about Jesus. Uh, you know what? You don't know that you're going to have the opportunity to do that. You don't know that you're going to find out. You could die today on the way home. The question is, is where would you go, heaven or hell? If you're uncertain, you know what? It's time to be certain. Jesus said that all of call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, you're a sinner. You got that cancer of selfishness. You've got that cancer of, of addiction, you know, eating you away, chipping away at your very soul, enslaving you increasingly. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't get it together. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. That's what I had to come to the realization of. I can't save myself. I, I can try and believe in myself, but as I've said many times, what happens if I believe in myself and I fail myself? Then who do I believe in? What if I have to say, well, believe in me? Well, if I put my belief in you, that you can save me, that you can fix what's wrong with me, uh, and then you fail me, now what do I do? All of man's answers 
you see, and their programs and plans cannot save you. And sin is in you, and the only way for that sin to be taken out of you is to come to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died on the cross and made payment for your sin so that that sin, you see, can be cleansed and he proved that he has the power to cleanse it and that he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, taking the wrath of God upon himself. He rose again from the dead that you might have the cancer of sin that's eating away at you cleansed, removed completely from you, that sin cast as far as the east is from the west. But that comes as a result of you recognizing, I don't have it together, can't get it together, I'm a sinner. We all are. The difference between you as a sinner, if you don't know Christ, and me as a sinner, is I'm on my way to heaven, you see, because I put my faith in the righteousness of Christ, you see. I put my faith in God who paid the price on that cross and took what I deserve. The wrath of a holy God, you see, was meted out on him. The wrath that I deserve, he paid off the credit card, if you would, the debt that I owe. That's why there is no other way, there is no other name under heaven by which a man or a woman can be saved. So where are you at? If you believed in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're on your way to heaven. Today of your last day, man, you're on your way to heaven, sin forgiven, and, and man, the blessings abundant, even presently, God with you. If you don't know Jesus and haven't given your life to him, you're on your way to hell. Wow, Pastor, you're, you're talking about hell in church? Yeah, it's often not talked about today. Well, that freaks me out. That causes me to fear. Good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> if you're not saved, I pray it scares you to death, the idea of hell. The death to yourself and your own self-centeredness and the yielding of life that you can have in Jesus Christ by coming to him. Today, if you're not certain, what are you doing? It's time to make a choice. And you can never blame, you can never blame God for your winding up in hell because he would say, when you stand before him one day, roll him, Gabriel, and you'll see yourself here at Calvary Chapel of the High Desert. You can't stay any longer. Nobody ever told me. I've never had the opportunity. Nobody ever told me I need a Savior and I, I need to put my faith in Christ. Nobody ever told me that my sins forgive, could be forgiven and I could have the hope of heaven because as the movie is rolling, you'll see yourself here hearing that message. And guess what? God will say, I, I provided, and he's probably provided many opportunity, other opportunities where we've heard that message. And you said no, you said no, you said no. You had a choice to make, and you chose to say no. So guess where you're going to go? And God will say, it's not my fault. You chose to reject the offer of forgiveness. Today, if you've not yet come, come today to Christ. Don't leave here the same way you walked in. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our midst. And now, Lord, I pray that these things that we have heard, 
God, that, you would, that we would be a church, that we would be a, a family, that we would be a people, a c- community of believers that you're proud of, Lord. That we would be those who embrace grace and peace. That we would be those who demonstrate faith and love. That we would be those who recognize that, that pain and suffering as, as your children have a purpose in our lives uh, for which, uh, God, uh, you desire to strengthen our faith. You desire to use those things to strengthen us in our faith in you. God, may we be those who don't live and make comfort a priority in our lives. May we be those who make Christ the priority in our lives. And Lord, I pray today if there's anyone here who has not yet given their life to you, God, that they would not walk out of these doors with uncertainty as to whether they will spend eternity in heaven or in hell, but Lord, that they might come today to Christ. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I wonder if there's anyone here, you're not sure your sin is forgiven. If you died, you don't know that you have that hope of heaven. God's spoken to you today. He loves you. He's brought you here to hear about forgiveness. But it's up to you. God won't force you to love him. It's your choice to respond. And today, if you're not sure that your sin is forgiven, if you don't know that you have that hope of heaven, and you'd like to say, Pastor, I want to leave here confident. I want to leave here, leave here with peace, knowing that I'm right with God. And so I want to give my life to Christ today, or I want to return to Christ today. I want you to stand to your feet wherever you are. I don't want to pray for you. I'll pray with you right where you're at. But I want you to stand to your feet if you want Christ. If you're not sure your sin is forgiven, if you're not sure that if you died today, you'd have that hope of heaven, let's settle that question right now. Don't walk out of these doors risking your eternal destiny. Come to Christ. Anyone in this last moment, just stand to your feet wherever you are. I want to pray for you. God bless you. Don't let this moment pass by. Don't let this moment pass by. Stand and remain standing right where you're at. And I want to lead you in a word of prayer, asking Christ into your life. Anyone else? Anyone else? God bless you in the back there. God bless you on the side here. Christians are praying. God is moving on on the hearts of men who desperately need Christ. We all do. Anyone else? Stop putting your faith in men and in yourself. Put your faith in the proper place, in the God who loves you and sent his son to die in your place. Anyone else? You want Christ. God bless you in the middle there. Anyone else? Just stand to your feet wherever you're at. God bless you, young lady. Anyone else? God's spoken to your heart. The choice, as Steve sang earlier, is up to you. It's up to you. God loves you, but he won't make you love him. You've got to make the choice. And you know what? If you make the choice and say yes to him, you don't have to get your act together. He'll make the change. You just come to him. Anyone else? Just stand to your feet wherever you're at. I want to lead you in a word of prayer. All right, for those of you that have stood, I want you to pray this prayer out loud after me, and and it's a prayer asking Christ into your life. And if you pray this prayer and mean it from your heart, God will take control of your life, and he'll, he'll change what you've been unable to change. And so I want you to pray this prayer out loud after me. And, uh, and it's a prayer asking Christ into your life. So let's pray. Pray aloud after me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and that I need you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son 
as my Savior to die on the cross to take what I deserve in payment for my sin. Cleanse me now and fill me with your Spirit. Thank you that my sin is forgiven. And from this day forward, I'm your child and have the hope of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.